If you're going to follow along with us in the Bible, we are actually going to start off in the book of John, chapter 14. And what I'd like to do is answer one of the greatest questions on one of the greatest days of the year, and that is, what does it take to be right with God? Now, let me, let me tell you what's interesting about this. Like, you can have a conversation with just about anybody, and you're going to get an incredible variety of answers here. What does it take to be right with God? We live in a very spiritually pluralistic world right now. In other words, it's okay to believe what you want to believe. That's kind of the, the norm. And we're in a kind of a non-judgmental kind of a phase, like, you know, that's, if that works for you, that's great. You know, we're, it's, it's okay to accept what everybody else believes. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe something, because all paths lead to, lead to God and all religions are basically the same. Now, someone's going to cut this part out of the tape and misquote me badly. I just realized that. That's not what I'm saying that I believe. That's what I'm saying. That's what our culture is today. We, are li- we live in a very spiritually pluralistic society. And we all think about God and or eternity at some time during our life. Especially when somebody dies. I mean... Uh, We want to feel good at that moment when somebody passes away, and so we say stuff like, well, they were a good person. You know, I'm sure that, I'm sure they're they're going to heaven. I'm I'm sure of it because they're such a good person, or or they're in a better place now, or they're looking down on us. And all of those statements that we say are to make us and make everybody else feel good about the death of that loved one. And in today's culture, it's very acceptable to discuss the spiritual unless you begin to discuss specifically what Jesus said about getting to heaven. Then it seems like Christianity is very intolerant. Because Jesus made a very exclusive claim in John chapter 14, verse 6. Now, if you read the verses prior to this, it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. As a matter of fact, John chapter 14 is used in most funeral services that I've been to. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Beautiful, talking about heaven. And then one of his disciples stops Jesus and says, okay, well, Jesus, how do we know the way? What a great question. Thanks, Thomas. What a great, because you're asking what we're all thinking. So, man, I'm really excited about where you're going, Jesus. That sounds like a really great place. How do we get there? And Jesus very succinctly answers the question in verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I want you to notice a definite article, the, right? Not one of many. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
It is that, it is that exclusivity that makes people see Christ and Christianity as less than inclusive. But let me tell you, Jesus made a way for everyone. That's incredibly inclusive. So, so it's, not, it's not a lack of effort on his part to, to not include everybody because he made a way for everybody to connect with his heavenly father. That's incredibly inclusive. But here's the exclusive part. <laughs> Jesus is the only way. So he made a way, right? That is incredibly inclusive, but he is the only way, which seems incredibly exclusive. But here's the truth. You can't ignore it. You can't manipulate it. You can't get around it. You can't make up, make up for it with your best intentions or your sincerity. Because the truth is, you can be very sincere, but just be very sincerely wrong. Have you heard anybody say something like, well, you know, all roads lead to heaven. And all religions basically teach the same stuff about God. They just call them different things. And all religions eventually lead to the same place. Well, I'm not, I'm not an expert on world religions. I'm not, I'm not here to, to give, to give a, a college-level course. But I would like to give a brief overview so that we can have a logical conversation about this. And there are five main religions in this world, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, Islam, and Christianity. Now, there's, there's more of them, all right? I get it, but I only have 20 minutes, all right? So we're going to say those are the five, and we're going to be good with that, all right? So a brief overview. If you look at Buddhism, they, they don't believe that there is a God, and, and by the way, I expect conversation afterwards where people correct me on some of this stuff. It's okay. Because I'm not a follower of any of these. This is just the studying that I've done. So with Buddhism, there is no God. You basically go through a series of countless rebirths. And what you're trying to do is to purify your heart. So every time you get a new start, you're getting better and better at it. And through deep meditation and, and, and a lot of effort, you are making the attempt to finally reach nirvana, which is the end of the rebirth cycle, and you finally made it. Okay? Hinduism believes that there is a God, Brahman, but he's very impersonal. And it's just kind of part of everything, Right? animals and nature and the cosmos, all of that is kind of all part of Brahman. And the life that you live today determines the form that you will take in your next life. So they have this idea of reincarnation where based on how you behave, so you all have made it to this level of life because of some past lives that you've lived. And the idea is that the quality of your life is an indicator of how you lived previously. And the idea is to eventually get to the place where through countless re reincarnations, you eventually reach perfection. Now, neither one, Buddhism or Hinduism, believe that whatever God is there is actually there to help you. 
you're completely on your own. You are making the attempt to get to be a better person and to reach the ultimate on your own, by yourself, the best that you can. And then you have, you have Islam, which is the fastest growing religion. It's said that it'll overtake uh, Christianity this century. And Islam believes in one God, that is Allah, and that your relationship with that God and your, your guarantee of either, of either paradise or hell is based specifically upon your behavior and your ability to adhere to five different practices that they, that they command their followers to do. And we won't go into all of them, but they involve stuff like praying five times a day and making a trip to Mecca, that kind of a thing. And through your devotion and good works, you'll have better standing with, with Allah. And then New Age, this is the one that is um, really ethereal. It's like it's, it, you are your own God because you're part of this cosmos. And God is, is, is the nature. It's, it's, it's the earth. It's, it's everything about us. And then earth is the source of spirituality. Um, God, whatever you want to call him, is actually your higher consciousness and is connected to everything around us. Everything is divine, and you create your own spirituality. Yourself is the originator and controller and God of everything. And then you have Christianity. And there's actually some similarities. You have one God. We attempt to do good things to please our Father. But the order is different. Because rather than do good things to make him happy, he loves us. And he has sent his son to make a way for us to have a relationship with him that makes all the difference. And we do good things because we love him, not because we're trying to get him to love us. Do you see the difference? So let's acknowledge the fact that even though there is some truth and beauty in all the world's religions, they just are not the same. Right? They just are not the same. So you go back to what I stated earlier, and you've heard people say, well, all roads lead to God, and, and, and that's just not what I'm seeing. And although they're beautiful, they're not all the same. And what I'd love for us to do this morning, briefly here, is just to consider Jesus. And just kind of think through me about this, since it is Easter, right? Consider Christ. I don't want you to consider this church, because we are full of imperfect people. There could have been a whole lot more amens there, that's for sure. All right? We're full of imperfect people. We are, okay, because I'm here. So don't, don't consider me. Don't consider this church. Don't even consider Christianity as you may be familiar with it. Because some of us are really horrible followers of the Christ that we say we love. So don't base your opinion of Christ on some of us. But I would ask you, to consider Jesus. And we're going to consider just three aspects of Christ. And the first is his ministry. 
And I want you to just think about the ministry that Jesus Christ had. No one debates his existence. He was here. He came to earth. And, and if you believe the biblical account, which, which I do, he was born of a virgin. He lived for 30 years. And then around that time frame, he began his earthly ministry, which lasted for three years. And then they, they killed him. He laid down his life. And during that three years, if you look at his ministry, it was to the outcasts. It was to the sick and the lame and the blind and the deaf and the lepers, the sinners and the publicans. Look what he says here in the book of Mark chapter 2. There's a, there's a, a storyline here that we're going to just kind of jump in the middle of here in verse 16. It says, and when the scribes and Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of the day, saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said to his disciples, like they didn't go to him. They went to his disciples and said, how is it that he eats, with, eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? Publicans were the tax collectors of the day, hated by the general population because of their, their deceit and the way that they took advantage of, of, of the citizenry. And then sinners, these were people who were operating outside of the religious system, so much so that that's how they were identified as sinners. They were that bad. And Jesus is being accused of not only being their friend, but eating with them. And, that, and the eating with them in that culture was, was much more than just having a meal together. It was actually like, like embracing and condoning that individual. Like I am getting intimately involved with this person by having a meal with them. And it baffled, it baffled the scribes and Pharisees that he would eat with the publicans and sinners. And Jesus hears it and says this, and when he heard it, he said to them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus Christ came for those who needed him the most. Critics never questioned the validity of his miracles. They just wanted him to stop. Because it was an affront to what they were teaching. Many of you are miracles of Jesus Christ. From what you were to what you are is a miracle. You're not just a better person. You are a brand new person. The Bible says that that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's a miracle. That's the ministry of Jesus. Consider the ministry of Jesus. And I want you also to do this. Consider the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is where we start to get out there a little bit, right? So, so Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, his entire life. And those of you who have kids realize how difficult that is. Like when he was a child, he was perfect. That'd be tough to raise, wouldn't it? Always right, because you can bluff sometimes as a parent, right? But he was, he was perfect. He lived a sinless life, had this incredible ministry. But because of the threat that he was to the establishment, they arrested him, falsely accused him, unjustly tried him, found him guilty, and he laid down his life. And they killed him. 
They killed him because he was a threat to their religious system. But it was all predicted. Everything about Jesus Christ's life was predicted years, hundreds, thousands of years before he was ever born. He fulfilled every one of them. Three days later, and I, I'm sorry, you've got to do the math here with me. If he, if he rose again on Sunday morning, and he said, I'm going to be in the ground like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, that's, that's three 24-hour periods. That means it probably wasn't Friday. I know, I know, I'm just trying to do the math here. You know, it's like, it, you know, you roll the all back. And then you look at the Jewish, the Jewish day, the, the, the hours were different than they are. Maybe we ought to have a good Wednesday service next year. That'll throw everybody off. So he's in the ground for three days, and he, of course, he rises again. And, and that's why we're here this morning. And I would have to say, if you're here this morning, you're at least curious about that. Because now it's been 2,000 years and we still celebrate this. And, and it, 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 you can Google it so that you know that I'm telling the truth. But well over 500 people witnessed him alive after he died on the cross. It, it's, a, it's, it is, it's, it's not just an assumption. It's not a fairy tale. It happened. He rose from the grave. He lived after he was dead a long time. It really did happen. He wasn't in a coma. He was dead. And now he's alive. They tried to cover it up. They paid off the guards. But it happened. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching at the beginning of the church. And he says this, you killed the prince of life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. He said, we've seen him. We have seen Jesus. There were two predominant theories of the day that tried to snuff out the resurrection of Christ. One was that maybe the the Roman guard stole his body away because there was actually a Roman soldier at the foot of the cross that looked up to the dying Savior and he said, Surely this must be the Son of God. So one theory is that maybe the the soldiers stole his body. And the reason they would steal his body was so that the disciples wouldn't steal his body and claim that he was resurrected. But don't you think that if they had stolen his body, they would have put it on display? Why would you steal the body and not show it to anybody? No, you want everyone to know we have the body. He He didn't resurrect. The second theory is maybe maybe the disciples stole his body away, and claimed resurrection. So you're telling me that 11 uneducated men crafted the most incredible plan to deceive the world. Not only did they pull it off, but everyone still believes it. To what end? All but one of the disciples died a martyr's death. Thomas, the one disciple who doubted the resurrection of Christ and then saw Jesus, died in India as a martyr, run through with a stake. There is something that happened that they witnessed that they were willing to not only give their life for, but live their life 
four. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then I'd ask you to consider this as well. Not only the ministry of Jesus, not only the resurrection of Christ, but the eternal message of Jesus Christ. I asked at the beginning, what does it take to be right with God? How are we made right with God? Can I read you just a few verses here in Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3, verse 22, 23, and 24 say this. Even the righteousness of God. Now that, that just means to be right with God. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all, them that believe there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, all? Even your grandma? Even your wife? I know, right? It's like all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how do we get right with God, how do we get the righteousness of God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. I am made right with God by Jesus. Plus nothing. I am made right with God by Jesus. And I mean this, plus nothing. Now, now the mistake that we make is we think, well, well, if, if that's all that it is, then what's to say that I can't go off and do whatever I want? There's nothing. I mean, that's what grace is all about. But I'm made right with God by Jesus, and then, and then my love for him and my gratitude would cause me to live a life that would honor him. That's what a relationship does. But I'm made right with God by Jesus, plus not going to church, although I think you ought to go. Not quitting smoking, not quitting drinking. I'm made right with Jesus plus nothing. Plus nothing. Because if it's not all Jesus, then that means you have a hand in it. And if you could have figured it out and done it, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. If there was any other way for it to have happened, he wouldn't have had to come and die. It's Jesus plus nothing. And here's the difference. We're not talking about a religion. We're talking about a relationship. And righteousness is from Jesus. And it introduces us to his heavenly father and begins a relationship. Here's the thing. Religion, it's all about me. It's what I can do to make God happy with me. See everything good I've done? I hope it outweighs all of my bad. That's religion. Relationship is, it's all about Jesus. It's all about everything he's done for me. He's already paid for my sin. Now I can enter into this relationship with my heavenly father. Religion says, if I obey God and live a good life, he'll love me more. Relationship says, because God loves me, I want to honor him and live for him. Religion says, it's all about what you do. Relationship says it's already done. It's already done. So he claimed to be the son of God. 
He said he was the only way to the Father. He predicted his death, his resurrection, and it all happened. I'm going with that guy. That's the one I'm following. He came to save the lost, heal the sick, help the helpless. That's the one that I want in my life because I can't do it on my own. And here's the invitation. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says this, For whosoever, that's as inclusive as you get, folks, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How beautiful is that? Whosoever. That's it. I'm honored that you're here this morning. But the heartbeat of our church is to be a church where non-church people like to come to church. Because we want to be a friend that introduces you to Jesus Christ. And if you're not familiar with that this morning, or if some of this was news to you, we want to give you an opportunity this morning to say, hey, I'm a whosoever. I'd like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this morning. We're going to pray. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. We're going to be dismissed. We're going to have some fellows down here at the front who are willing to pray with you and talk to you about Jesus Christ and answer your questions if you'd like to become a whosoever. Let's all bow our heads and we'll pray. Father, we do love you. Thank you for loving us and for your goodness to us. Thank you for Jesus making a way. Thank you for the relationship that he wants us to have and the righteousness that he wants to give us because of his resurrection. And I pray, Father, that this would be a life-changing moment for many people this morning. Thank you for loving us, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.